everyone. Welcome back to the Blue Room. Today is episode 5 of this season, which corresponds to section 5 of Hope, a User's Manual. Section 5 is called The Practice of Hope, and this is the Get Your Hands Dirty section. And what could be more fitting for that than to talk about gardening with Derek Weston? As you'll hear, we talk about a lot more than just gardening, though. We talk about food, faith, race, justice. It's a wide-ranging conversation that stands well alongside the most practical section of the book. I always love talking to Derek. Longtime listeners may remember our Black Panther conversation from last season. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you will, too. A little bit about him. The Reverend Derek Weston is Theological Education and Training Coordinator for Creation Justice Ministries, formerly the National Council of Churches Eco-Justice Program. Derek is a writer, filmmaker, podcaster, speaker, and educator. He is co-host of the Food and Faith podcast and producer of Spoon, Spade, and Soul, a podcast highlighting food and land-based ministries in the Episcopal Church. He also produced the short film series, A Wilderness Like Eden, highlighting the work of churches engaged in food justice work. You'll hear us talk in our conversation about the Black Church Food Security Network, which is featured in that film project. Derek is co-author of the forthcoming book, The Just Kitchen, Invitations to Sustainability, Cooking, Connection, and Celebration. Let's get to the conversation. I would love to know a little of your story of how you got into this work specifically around, although it's not that specific, it's so broad in the best way, food and faith, justice, race, all of this. And I suspect it's kind of like a lot of our calls and vocations where each individual move made sense, but maybe you couldn't have predicted that this is where you'd end up or at least where you'd be right now. But tell me a little bit about how you came into this work. It started from a, a dark season of my life. Started from going through divorce and going through having pretty significant career setbacks and having a season where in that dark place, gardening was an anchor for me. It grounded me kind of that both literal and spiritual way that gardening can ground you. And in the midst of gardening, for me, gardening had always sort of been this, I don't want to say selfish, but very self-centered spiritual practice. It was something that was formative for me, something that was therapeutic and cathartic for me. But as you get serious about anything, and, and when I'm the kind of person, when I get into something, I get into it. I, I get kind of obsessive about it. And as I started growing more and researching more and thinking more about agriculture and planting, you know, started starting to realize thinking about food insecurity and food justice, and then recognizing that all of the justice issues that I cared about, it wasn't that many degrees of separation between those issues and food or issues of the land. So when you talk about environmental justice, obviously agriculture is a huge part of our environmental 
justice issue. When we talk about race, we have to talk about the agricultural history of this country. We have to talk about unequal access to quality foods. We have to talk about food deserts, which we now kind of more popularly, well, I guess it's not popular yet. We're trying trying to popularize the term food apartheid, recognizing that it's not a it's not a naturally occurring thing, that it is a human-made system. And even issues around, you know, gender and, and LGBTQ issues, like so much of that has a history in who was able to own land and who was able to cast out a lineage, you know, from from what keep things in a family, you know, all of that, there, there are connections to the land. And, and so as I started seeing these connections between the things that I really cared about and food and the fact that food is universal, we all have to eat. We, we can't be disconnected from food. And then realizing how much scripture has to say about food, how much of our faith is food-centered. It all kind of started to, so so that happened, that happened over the course of my gardening. Then I started having conversations with people. Around that time I became, this is around 2015, 2016, I became aware of the farminary program at Princeton Theological Seminary uh, run by Nate Stuckey. And he and I connected and became friends. And in that process, I met Sam Chamberlain, who was pastor was pastor of Keep and Till and, and was co-host on the Food and Faith podcast. And just meeting people who were deep in this conversation. And then from that, I was a part, uh, I had the great privilege of being a part of the Regenerate Fellowship through Wake Forest Divinity School, getting to be around probably a dozen other folks around my age who were thinking seriously about, you know, doing farm-based ministries, doing food insecurity work, doing environmental justice work, and just having these really rich conversations and, and how all of them had connected the dots between food and these justice issues. Um, and just, it, you know, sometimes, sometimes you have these, these experiences where you feel like, like, am I, am I crazy? Am I out, am I, <laughs> am I out on an island by myself? And then you find these other like-minded folks and you're like, oh no, there are other people who are having this conversation. And that was a real turning point for me. And then from there, getting connected with the podcast and, and then, you know, can't, can't help, but also just kind of mention in 2020, like at the end of 20. 2019, a friend, a friend of mine just kind of, we had to, we happened to be in, the, in a meeting together, mentioned that he was looking for volunteers for a community garden. And, you know, I, I said, hey, I like to garden. And, you know, <laughs> I look back on that moment, that, hey, I like to garden moment. And such a simple sentence. And, and so he introduces me to this space. It's about a probably a quarter of an acre in a community garden plot. And, and I went from my volunteering to my being sort of the manager of this space and coordinating the volunteers. Um, and has become this, you know, over the last three seasons has become this really sacred place for me of growing, of watching volunteers grow food, of distributing food in places across the city of Baltimore. So it's just, it's just kind of evolved one thing after another. And, and, you know, there's so many good books. There are so many people who are, are finding energy in this conversation. You know, I, I think it's one of those things where, those of us who are immersed in the church world see so many places where the energy is lagging, the energy is is draining. And this was a part of the church where the energy was ramping up. 
And that was really inviting. That was, mm-hmm. that was, that was like, oh, this, this, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. This is, this is an experience I haven't had before. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it was, it was invigorating and, and, and continues to be. There are, you know, as, as anything, you know, as there, there become struggles and obstacles as work goes on, but, but it's, it's a thing that's really kind of got some momentum and some steam behind it. And it's, it, and, and the conversations I have with people are so fun. Well, you've, you and your co-hosts have been a part of that building of that and nurturing, maybe tending, if we want to use some, you know, <laughs> growing metaphors some gardening metaphors, but they're hard to avoid. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, to your point about scripture and our, our kind of spiritual story, it, yeah, it's all in there. Several, so many things came to my mind as you were telling this story and thank you. I don't think I'd ever heard the whole kind of evolution. But one of the things that really struck me is, you know, people want to work with me as a coach sometimes around what's my call next. I want to make a transition of some kind. And and so often people think the answer to that is, is some kind of esoteric decision. Like here's where I'm going to focus. And yours started with literally your hands in dirt, right? I mean, at least the the way you told the story, right? This was something that you did for your own self-care and self-comfort. And then the evolution happened. And then you, you return to the soil with this community garden, which of course you're managing. So there's multiple levels here, but it's also a, you know, and I'm sure you had your hands in the dirt all along the way, but I love that that touch point was there, right? I mean, at least that's what I was hearing. And as you were talking and, and it reminded me after, after Trump was elected, I remember hearing a DeRay McKesson activist on a podcast. And he said, people ask me all the time, like, where, where can I have the most impact? There's so much to be done right now. Like, where is, what's the issue? What's the the cause? And he said, where you start is, is the thing that you are, are most excited about. That's where you will have the most impact, right? Yep. So not thinking about which strategic concern, if I tackle that, then I tackle all these other things. I mean, you talk about how food impacts everything, but I didn't hear like, this is the most strategic use of my time, Derek Weston, to, to look at food. It, it's your joy and your sustenance yeah. and where the energy is. And gosh, there's just so much wisdom in that. And so thank you for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, and I always, I always come back to the Howard Thurman quote of, of not asking what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who are fully alive and this has been work that has made me feel the most alive. And I, I, th- I think we, we, we can all find our places of, of where we can be a healing presence in the world when we find those places that make us come alive. Absolutely. I love it. Tell me about the color of food. Yeah, I, after, you know, <laughs> in 2020, there was all this conversation of we're having a racial reckoning. You know, yes. um, that... I've used the phrase myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there For better was and worse. <laughs> well, and I and I think there was there was there was a modicum of truth to it. And a friend of mine who was in a fairly affluent and mostly white congregation said, you know, we've we've done the reading, we've read the books, we've we we've had the book studies, we've listened to the lectures, you know. What do we do next? And in that conversation, I said, you know, find an issue that that you want to work on. And one of those things could be 
could be food. And, and just kind of getting, as I was talking to her about her congregation, food seemed like a thing that her congregation could get into. So I developed the course sort of in response to that thinking that there were going to be a lot of people who, you know, had done the, who were beginning the anti-racism work and, and looking for practical applications to it. Um, and so I, that's where I developed this course. It's called The Color of Food. And I took The Color of Food title from this book, which I actually conveniently have right here. Always have. Oh, it's not convenient when I start. There we go. It's, it's this beautiful photo journal. Uh, this woman, Natasha Bowens, wrote this book called The Color of Food, Stories of Race, Resilience, and Farming, where... She, and this I should say was also a resource that appeared around that 2015, 2016 period of my life. She does this photo journal of going to African American and Native American and and Latino American communities who have experienced historical trauma in the land and are still farming and are finding that the process of healing from those historical traumas is in the land, is in staying in the land, is in reconnecting with the land. And so I, and and I love that idea. I love that idea because as as an African-American, I I grew up in, in a way where distance from the land was progress. That <laughs> I don't. I, I've, I've said this to other people, and and not everyone has heard this this saying of like I, I I grew up around black people who would say things like I don't even want to pick the cotton out of a Tylenol bottle, like <laughs> that 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 the distance from the land yeah. was how we were going to make ourselves strong and. And a lot of people are saying, no, reconnecting with the land. We were we were actually robbed of our relationship with the land in those historical traumas. And so being able to talk about the historical traumas for African-Americans and connecting them to agriculture and connecting them to food, connecting them to the fact that there are there is a reason that certain crops are in this country because they have origins in African and in in Africa and in African know-how, to be able to debunk the idea that I think a lot of us grew up with, that Africans were enslaved kind of as unskilled labor. And and the fact of the matter is that Africans were brought here because of their skills, that they were brought here because of their agricultural genius, because of their, you know, you don't build a country with unskilled labor. So being able to teach that historical piece, and then be able to highlight the stories of Black environmental justice advocates and people who are doing food justice work, introducing people to the idea and term food apartheid, which I think is just really important that we understand that redlining wasn't just for houses. Redlining has been about food and access to resources, all kinds of resources, which then becomes redlining of health. Being able to, and then, you know, the other piece of this is that I, I, because of the context that I've done it in, I, I've connected all of these things to scripture. Being able to say that, you know, some of these things are ancient. Some of these things are, are conversations that have been with us from the beginning. And so it was, it's been, it was fun to develop that course. It's been really fun to teach it. Looking forward to some opportunities to teach it again in the new year. I've had some really 
wonderful conversations from leading that course. In talking to people for this season of the podcast, there's been an interesting, I don't know if I want to call it pushback, but kind of, which I welcome, of, of thinking about hope and whether hope is essential or hope is can be problematic because hope can sometimes be used in a way that is pacifying of people, especially for those of us who are wanting to see a more just world, hope can become a burden. I mean, all, all of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't want to ask, where is your hope? I want to ask, how does your work intersect with ideas of hope or not? Yeah. How does that all fit or not? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. You know, we end our podcast with the question of what gives you hope. And the reason we do that is because we believe that hope is a catalyst for the work. And I don't think we would have that. And that's why it's at the end of the conversation, you know, because it's after people have talked about the work. It's after, because, and and there's an assumption built in. And, and actually, um, it, it's funny, we, we got Reverend Michael Malcolm. It's one of those two first name situations where I often worry, am I getting them in the right order? But uh, Reverend Michael Malcolm, an African-American pastor who is part of Alabama Interfaith Power and Light. And we interviewed him and, you know, he pushed back on our conversation, our question about hope and said, you know, I don't know if it's hope if hope is the word that I would use, I would use the word courage. And Which I, are often I, put together. Could be good or bad, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I and I, I received that. You know, I, I wasn't like, you know, we're going to completely change the format of the show. But I, I received that because I think courage maybe more clearly ties to action, to a courageous action. And, and so I understood I understood what he meant, but we do it at the end of the show because we've already at that point heard people talking about their actions, heard them talking about the work, heard them talking about the struggle, heard them talking about the things that they've had to overcome. And so there's an assumption of hope. There's an assumption that hope is a part of the motivator and hope is a part of the striving, that mm-hmm. that there's that there's an image of, of a better world to which they're moving. And so I think hope is is absolutely sure it can be misused. Absolutely, you know, I, I don't I don't disagree with that, but I think hope is central to our work. And and you know, I I do that as a as a gardener. I I mean I'm I'm in I'm in seed catalog season. <laughs> Right, I so, have to show you right here on my desk. I've got two that have just yes, arrived in the last week. Yes. So I'm on those. I'm on those mailing lists now. <laughs> Fantastic. Yes. Fantastic. And and and, and it, you know it's and they are they are intentionally bright and colorful for those of us who get the blues during the the winter and yeah. uh, and and they are intentionally hope filled. You know, yes. like they show people holding their giant gourds right and and holding their their bouquets of flowers and and they they want you to believe in the fact that you can grow things it's it's an incredible and you you begin to imagine your garden of the future And, and like i don't know that many people would consider this 
maybe don't think of this as an action, but I think one of the most important aspects of hope is imagination, that you begin to imagine the the thing and 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 then you start to sketch based off of what you imagine. And I'm going to put my flowers here and I'm going to put my potatoes here. And, you know, it, it, it f- starts from hope and turns to something more concrete. Mm-hmm. So gardening, I think, in some ways taught me the value of hope because you you, you start over every year um, in these seasons of kind of despair and then new hope and you kind of run through the the gamut all all in a year's time beautifully beautifully said i want to circle back to something you said earlier what is the name of the organization that you'll be doing the documentary the second it's it's the black church food security network so tell me about the black church food security network yeah. So started, founded by Reverend Dr. Heber Brown III here in Baltimore. He is a dynamic man, a dynamic leader. Basically started from his recognition that a lot of the illnesses he was seeing in his community as a Black pastor were diet-related illnesses. And thinking about what can he do as a pastor beyond prayer to serve his people. And that began with with starting gardens in the church, on the church property, and then starting to think about the resources that the Black church in particular has access to. That's many of them having land, many of them having industrial kitchens, many of them having buses, vans. And from that has formed a network that started in Baltimore, started with Baltimore churches, but has spread sort of up and down the East Coast of connecting Black churches with Black farmers, creating urban markets for rural farmers, creating access to healthy food for urban centers, creating, in my estimation, a more faithful use of church land and church property beyond manicured lawns, more faithful use of church kitchens beyond the once a week use. And and it's rooted in a history of activism. It's rooted in a history of, uh, and and Heber tells these, these stories much far better than I can, of Vernon Johns, the pastor who preceded um, Martin Luther King Jr. and and his growing watermelons and selling watermelons after after services and rooted in the activism of people like Fannie Lou Hamer and recognizing that there has been this history of seeking of Black liberation through food and that there is this sort of a natural outgrowth of that. So it's been fun to, you know, we've, we've, done a few days of shooting and we're setting up a few few more interviews coming up but really seeing the changes that happen in these congregations when they start growing things on their property when they start thinking about you know cuz the the thing about gardens not just the the practical side of growing food for neighborhoods that might not have access to good food gardens are beautiful and a lot of times in these these neighborhoods the beautifying aspect of gardening is is just as healing as the food 
as the as the healthy food. So it's it's a really exciting story. It's a really exciting. We're having some great conversations, and it's a, and it's a model. You know, this is this is the Black Church Food Security Network, and Heber's focus is the Black Church, but it's a it's a model for church period, in terms of thinking about what do we do with our land? What do we do with our kitchens? What do we do with our vans? Is the most faithful thing we can do to put thousands of dollars worth of chemicals into our manicured lawns? Obviously, the way I answered that, I asked that question <laughs> uh, was was very leading. But yeah, uh, I like where you were leading. <laughs> But, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's a model for, for yeah. what, again, what can be. If we think if we, if we start with our assets and, I, and that's really where, you know, a, a lot of Heber's work is, you know, kind of built on that asset based community development model of starting with what do you have? And it's, again, churches are so mired in our deficits right now of what we don't have. And we we so easily overlook the things that we do have. So it, it's it's again it's it's one of the more hopeful, energizing things you'll hear about faith communities. Mm-hmm. I can't wait. Mm. Look forward to the documentary and the book. So give me the what's the what's the format or the kind of premise. What, tell us about this wonderful book that's coming out. Yeah. So uh, the Just Kitchen Invitations to Sustainability, Cooking, Connection, and Celebration. I got it right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it took me a while when I grew Sabbath in the suburbs. I was like, is it a family's experiment or is it a family's experience? I, I'm still not sure I get it right. Just Kitchen will um, get you there. Just Kitchen, yeah. the, the Just Kitchen will get you there. So it's it's, you know, it's not a cookbook. It's a book about cooking. It's a book about sort of the histories of power in cooking. It's about how we bring our stories into our cooking, about how we cook in a way that is sustainable, not only for the planet, but for our communities and for ourselves. It's about how we bring celebration to our cooking. It's about how we bring story and and heritage to our cooking. It's about how we restore our physical, mental, spiritual health by cooking. It's about, in a lot of ways, it's about changing cooking from that chore that we have to do to the ritual we get to be a part of, where we transform ingredients into a meal. And and some of it is about the awe of transforming uh, ingredients into a meal. And again, some something like food that can be so mundane we forget to experience the awe, you know, Jason Chestnut, a friend of mine, who's a filmmaker in one of the interviews, he talks about caramelizing onions and, and just kind of like, that's, that's kind of a magical process. I was just going to say, <laughs> it's truly magical. That was the it's, word that came to my mind. And, and, and we, we, we forget to let things be magical. We forget to let things blow our minds. We forget to let things dazzle us and you know we want to want to bring that back and you know in in the process of writing this book I cooked a lot more (laughs) for my family you know just some of that was research some of that was very practical and and it's you know there are days when it's just you you just got to get food on the table there's days you know uh, in in the midst of writing there there was a 
day where where my where my son and my daughter sort of in, in rapid succession what are we having for dinner when's dinner gonna be ready you know like both both of them did it and i was kind of like you know when dinner time is right uh, <laughs> yeah but but and and giving ourselves grace for those you know part of what we write into the book is giving ourselves grace for those moments you know that we're not going to do it right 100 percent of the time but but really really being able to I think when we think about the huge justice issues of the world, we get really overwhelmed. And when we can say that my spending a little extra on chicken from a farm opposed to from the grocery store helps to support a local economy, helps to encourage the processes that go into healthier raising of of animals and healthier raising of produce growing of produce that those really small local actions can be part of our thinking about the world that we want to see thank you so much for joining us in the blue room many thanks to derek weston don't forget to pre-order derek's book the just kitchen it is sure to be a great one You can also follow his work at creationjustice.org. You can also check out my website, maryannemckibbendana.net. And if you liked this podcast, please subscribe, share, rate, and review. You know the drill. I'm Marianne McKibben-Dana, speaking to you from Reston, Virginia, the ancestral land of the Manahawk people. This podcast was produced and edited by Mel Dana. Thank you, as always, for listening. Steady on.